You're listening to the Leadership Jam Session Podcast, the place where you'll get to hear leaders at all levels of management share their practical solutions to the management challenge you face every day. So let's give it a jam. I'm your host, Rob Fonte. Welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. If you're listening for the first time, my name is Rob Fonte. I'm a leadership development consultant and coach with more than 20 years experience in leading teams. For more information about me or how you can subscribe to the show, please visit my website at leadershipjamsession.com. Now enough about me. Today's guest is Alain Hunkins, who is the best-selling author of Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And his book has been endorsed by some of my favorite leadership writers, such as Jim Cousy's Barry Posner, Daniel Pink, and Marshall Goldsmith. And over his 20-year career, he has worked with over 2,000 leaders in 25 countries. And some of his clients include Walmart, Citigroup, GE, State Farm Insurance, IBM, and Microsoft. Alain, welcome to the Leadership Jam Session. Thanks so much, Rob. I'm really excited to be here with you today. All right. So are you ready to jam? I am so ready to jam. I've got my jamming shoes on. Very good. All right. So I'm excited to dive into your book, Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And you talk about the three secrets, which is connection, communication, and collaboration. So I'm curious, why did you write this book? What was your inspiration behind it? Yeah. So, you know, people say sometimes they ask me like, so like, how long did it take you to write the book? And honestly, Robert, it took me 20 years to write this book <laughs> in that the book wasn't something that I sat down and said, hmm, what do I think about leadership? So as you shared in the introduction, I've worked with over 2000 groups of leaders all around the world over 20 years. And so what the way it worked was I was seeing patterns, you know, as I'm sure in your work doing leadership development, you start to see patterns of behavior behavior, certain things that great leaders have in common, certain things that lousy leaders have in common. And you would pick up details and stories. And so what I started doing was I started taking notes. In about 2009, I started taking notes. And I had all these notes. And then in 2011, I started doing a blog. And I just if I had a good story, I turn it into what's the principle here and the blogs got bigger. And those blogs ended up becoming chapters. And what I noticed when I reviewed all the blog material is that there were these three overarching themes around leadership that kept showing up time and time again. There was a whole lot of material around connection, a lot around communication and around collaboration. So in some ways, the book was organically grown from the grassroots up from being out in the field with real leaders because the book is all about, look, leadership, as we know, it's so much easier said than done. And so what I wanted to share with people is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, you want to communicate well? Well, so does everyone else. What are the things that are going to trip you up? And so I wanted to include that in the book with stories and practical tips and tools and takeaways so that people knew what they were doing. So that's where the book comes from. And it's designed to really help people accelerate their leadership growth. So you talk about connection. Perhaps you can give some context into what that means and and why is that important for leaders? So I don't really care what your job title is or what industry you work in. At the end of the day, you are in the people business. And so leadership isn't a position. It's not about power. It's not a job title. Leadership at its core is a relationship between person who leads and a person who chooses to follow. So if you are in the human being business, first and foremost, you should figure out what is it that's going to help people to follow effectively. I forget who said it, but they said, you know, if you want to know if you're a leader, turn around, see who's following you. And we live in a world today where the do as I tell you, because I say so command and control style leadership 
is really dying like a dinosaur. I mean, it's going away. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's going away, um, which I get into in the book, um, which have a lot to do with the rise of technology and the information transparency that we have now. The fact is, if you tell people, shut up because I say so, they're going to find another job. And they're going to find it pretty easily because between things like LinkedIn and Glassdoor, we all know where the grass is greener. And so you're not going to keep, especially your top performers with you. So connection is at the core of the relationship. And ultimately, and there's great social science research that goes into this, Rob, which is we now know that feeling cared for, which I know, look, I'm from New York. I'm like this most died in the wool cynic. So I hear things like caring for your people. There's the part of me that goes, oh, could it get any more touchy feely than this? And the research would say that caring for your people is the number one thing that will increase engagement and retention. So it starts with basically showing empathy, caring. People want to know that you are thinking about them and that you care how they feel. And if you don't, don't take my word for it. Just think about the people in your life. You know, who do you respond to? You know, on a certain level, it's the people that take an interest in you and care about you are the ones that you're more likely to do more, work harder, and be more connected to. So this is why connection is so important. There's been a lot of discussion over the years about empathy and the importance around it. And I do love in your book how, how you define empathy into two buckets, right? And there are some of us out there that uh, struggle with being empathetic. Right. Some of us are just wired to be more empathetic and others are not. So for those of us that do struggle, how can we overcome some of those challenges? What recommendations and advice can you give us? So let's start by defining the way we define empathy, which is showing people you understand them and care how they feel. And you talked about these two parts and we can call them kind of the head part which is the, we'll call it the cognitive empathy, which is you can understand how someone could be thinking some way. The other part is what we'll call affective or heart-based empathy, which is that you can feel what people are going through. Like you care how they feel and you have that emotional connection. I think the harder part for a lot of people, especially in the workplace, is that affective, that emotional part. It's like, whoa, I, you know, if you were, I mean, I'm, I'm 52, I was born in 1968. So I came of age, I remember, and you might've heard this too, Rob, is like, this is work. You check your feelings at the door. Like you don't do that. Well, the, the world has changed a lot. And in fact, what we're finding is actually people can never really check their feelings at the door. What they were doing is they were suppressing their feelings at the door. Actually, Deloitte did some really interesting research. Like 61% of U.S. employees feel the need to cover their identities in some ways. Now, look back in the 1980s and 90s, we were still living on the tail end of the industrial age. So it was like, shut up, do your job, you know, just work here for 30 years and just keep quiet. Well, now we live in this knowledge work age and we actually need people to do their best work and they have to be creative. And so if you're showing up and putting on this mask, it's really hard to do your best work. I mean, that's what all the studies would show. So in terms of becoming more empathetic, if this is a challenge for you, the fact is most of us can be empathetic for some people, but it might be a small group. It might be your kids or your spouse well, it's learning how to expand that circle of empathy to others beyond that small circle. This goes along with something else. A lot of people have a hard time with asking someone, hey, how are you? How are you feeling? And then slowing down enough and shutting up enough to just, just to listen to them. 
Like you don't have to fix it. And I think a lot of us who get into these leadership roles feel this need to fix things. Like, and again, this is the classic thing between husbands and wives, right? It's like someone like your wife, you know, if my wife like say like, I'm telling you this, I'm like, well, you should do this. Like, I didn't ask you to fix this. I just want you to listen to me. And then it's amazing the power of just shutting up and listening to someone, giving them the space and the presence and the attention. That's actually where this starts from. And that is a muscle that for a lot of us who are task-driven, go-go achievers, that muscle has atrophied. So we're really strong in other things. So this is a question of learning how to strengthen these empathy muscles of really focus, quieting down your own mind, your need to respond, and just listening with purpose. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you look at it intent too, right? Some of us, particularly for new leaders, they do want to just jump right in and fix it. You know, they, in their minds are thinking, here's how I'm going to bring value. Here's how I'm going to help my employees. But, uh, and what you're saying is, you know, in some cases that may not be the best thing to do. Sometimes you just need to be a sounding board. Absolutely. And yeah, you, you talked about this idea of a lot, particularly a lot of new leaders feel this need. Um, in fact, in my book, I write about this guy, Matt, that I met. And uh, Matt is a district manager for a national fast food franchise. When I met Matt, he was the number one ranked out of, uh, they had 100 district managers. He was ranked number one. And I said, Matt, that's amazing. That's really impressive. Have you always been such a top performer? He said, no way. When I started, which was like 15 years earlier, he said, I was like number 84 on this list out of 100. And I was low for a long time. He said, the problem I had is when I, I got promoted to district manager, I got all full of myself. And I was like, I'm, I'm the district manager. And he had this fixer mind, mindset. So every day in their industry, in their, in their business, they would get a printout of all of their key performance metrics. And in their business, they call it the hot list. So Matt told me, he said, the first thing I do, I'd look at the hot list every morning and see what was in red. So it wasn't measuring up. And then I'd hop in my, in my car and you know he's, he's got like nine different fast food franchise restaurants he's got to go to. So he'd hop in his car and he'd drive from one, one restaurant to the other and just like basically say, you got to fix this. You got to do this, do this. Like, and, he'd, and he'd do, 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 fix, fix, fix. And he said, I tried this for years and it didn't get better and turnover in the, in, in the restaurants was terrible. It was just terrible. And he said, finally, I had this wake up call. I realized people don't want to work for a fixer. They want to work with a leader. And so I totally changed my approach. What I did is I started going in and I talked with the store manager and I'd say, how are you? How was your weekend? And, and build some actual real relationship. And then I'd pull out the hot list, but instead of showing them like, this is red, you got to fix this. I'd say, here's the data. What do you think we should do? And then together, they'd co-create a solution. And so in some ways, Matt models these three secrets, right? It's connection, like, right? how are you? What's going on? Communication, ask. And, and communication, starting leading by listening, as opposed to do this, tell this, right? So he's leading by listening. What do you think? And then collaboration, working together to create things together. And so it's a shift. And the cool thing he said about all of this is he said, the way I realized the key to making the numbers is to stop focusing on the numbers first. It's actually to focus on the people first because the numbers are just an indicator of the behavior of the people. And then he said, and the coolest thing now about all of this is that I'm number one, I am so much less stressed and I'm working so much less hard than I did when I was 84th and our teams are having so much more fun doing it. So this is the upside of taking this human-centered leadership approach. I'm so glad you said that because uh, for a number of years, I was a sales manager. And, and now I, yeah, as, as I 
teach a lot of my my leadership courses, and and I have a fair amount of, of managers who are in sales, and I always tell them that listen, the number to some extent is irrelevant. Stop focusing on the number. It's about the how. It's the behaviors of your people that that get to that that number. So it's refreshing to hear you to hear you speak about that. Yeah, and I've seen leaders, and I've coached leaders around this too, because if you think about your typical business meeting, let's say it's, it's a monthly standing meeting where you're doing a business update, what's the first thing that's on the agenda? Let's look at the numbers, right? And usually we get into this big discussion about the numbers, and that takes priority and the energy. And if we have time, which we usually don't because we get so busy in the numbers, oh, how are the teams? How are people doing? Like, what's going Wow. What if you flipped that whole model and actually started with the people and then talked about the work and the projects? And then, by the way, you'll, you'll get to the numbers. Trust me, you'll get to the numbers. But when you flip that around, that sends a very clear message of what's important. Otherwise, what it does is it just perpetuates this industrial age mindset that actually people are these interchangeable parts. I mean, there's no accident. I mean, this is where the words human resources came from. It was the industrial age. Like, we need some human resources in here to man this factory. And that's where it comes from. And so we got to realize we got to shift things back where we've got human beings first, because when people get surprise, surprise, when people get treated like humans, they perform better. So true. And let's look at today's environment, right? Where we've got managers uh, who, who are struggling with this uh, managing employees remotely. And, and again, there's a fair amount of managers out there that, that do, and for years I've been managing employees remotely, but for the ones that, that this is new for them, you know, th- th- it is a struggle. And I got to imagine that, uh, you know, I'm curious just to hear from, from your opinion, the connection piece and even the communication piece, do you find that even more significant in this new work environment that, that we're in? Oh, absolutely. It's way more significant. I, I've been saying to a lot of people is that basically all of your habits, either positive or negative, have been magnified through this remote working from home pandemic, right? So if you were a connector before, you immediately went, oh my gosh, I need to connect to people because they're going through stuff because that's how you're wired. That's your strength. Whereas if that's not your thing, there's a good chance. I mean, I read some studies that like 35% of leaders hadn't even stopped to ask people, hey, how are you doing in the middle of this crisis? four months into it, like we're talking in July and I see that stuff and I shake my head and I think, oh my gosh, I'll never be unemployed because if this is the, if this is such a majority, the norm. So, yeah. So I would say the challenge is when we move to an all virtual, all remote workforce as leaders, we don't have as much room to be sloppy. So what that, what that means is we have to be that much more intentional because look, you can't just pop by someone's office down the hall and say, Hey, how's it going today? You got to schedule a meeting of some kind. So you have to create intentional structure of, I need to intentionally connect with people because if I don't, they will go out of sight, out of mind today, tomorrow, next week, whatever that is. And I need to start to build that structure in. And I could basically fake that a lot when we were in person mm-hmm. and now I can't fake it anymore. Right. So curious, just to get your thoughts on this, do you think that this environment that we're in in, in managing people remotely will force managers to be more empathetic or to increase their communication skills? 
I think so. I mean, I, I'd, I'd hope so. And the reason I, I'm, I'm positive and bullish on this is because 95% of us are in the knowledge work age, right? So we're having to creatively problem solve to meet the needs of a customer. It's not repetitive manual labor, because if it's been repetitive manual labor, it's probably already been automated or outsourced or turned to a robot, or it's about to. So what I'm thinking is as we're moving forward, Basically, we have to start thinking of employees as, in some ways, independent contractors. Like, here's your project. Here's, let's scope out the project. And, you know, as you're probably already seeing, some employees can get this project done in 28 hours in a week. Some need 55. And at the end of the day, we can't control that all. And we can check in and support them around this. But this idea of thinking of work as a nine to five venture, I mean, I think what we're going to see a lot more is we're going to be scoping things out by project. And as we're having to deal with now, yeah, you're not going to work nine to five because you might be getting your kids online for schooling, right? So you got to take a break. So people are, are putting their little kids to bed and then they're working from nine o'clock at night to midnight. So this idea of this nine to five world, in some ways, it's been a myth for a while, but it's we're really seeing how much of a myth it was. And if we start thinking of our employees and treating them with the respect of a contractor and, and turning this into a results-only work environment where people are being paid for the value and the results they deliver, which means we're going to have to really rethink a lot of aspects of how we go about doing business. Mm -hmm. Well, and so I'm going to actually jump now to the, I do want to come back to the communication piece, but as you're talking through this, some of the collaboration topics that you discuss come to mind. Perhaps you can share a little bit around that because I think it does tie into into what we're talking about right now. And, and, you know, I have managers that tell me they're working more hours than they ever have now, right? And, and, and you do give some good tips, I believe, in terms of how to mitigate or at least be more efficient with your time in, in terms of collaboration. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a couple of points you brought up here. So one is kind of connecting to what we were just talking about before as we move into collaboration and thinking about how do we create an environment where, where we're focused on results and value as opposed to time allotted. So in the last section of the book, collaboration, we get into the fact that what le great leaders do is they recognize they need to design environments where people can perform at their best. And from my research, I found that there's four fundamental human needs that need to be satisfied in order for people to perform at their best. And one of those needs is ownership. As we all know, no one, no one has ever said, gosh, you know what I love about my leader is how much they micromanage me, right? Said no one ever. So one of the big needs is ownership, the sense that this is your project and you own it. So that's why if we think about this idea of scoping out a project, thinking of people as independent contractors, that gives them so much freedom and autonomy. Now, yes, there are some constraints, like this is what you need to do, here are the targets, this is what you need to achieve, but how you go about doing it is so important. So I'd say ownership is one of the big needs that's going on right now. Now, connected to this, as we're thinking, you know, because a lot of managers, as you're saying, are working harder, they're working more hours, is we have to look at our systems and our processes and go, how can I simplify stuff? There's a lot of just stupid stuff that's happening. I mean, and that gets harder even in the work from home environment. So for example, interruptions, 
you know, a lot of us are used to the fact, hey, you got a second? Well, you know, a second is never actually a second. In fact, the research would show that if you're deep working on a project and someone interrupts you, it takes an average of 19 minutes to get back on track into the flow of what you're doing. So we have to be really vigilant about how we both interrupt ourselves as well as others and carving out some space and focus time to do what we need to do. So maybe we can't have the same kind of I'm always available. Maybe we set up office hours that, you know, between 2 p.m. and 3.30 p.m., I'm available for that. I mean, there's a lot of creative ways to do it. So the big areas that really are the major time sucks for most of us are meetings and emails. So, and in my book, I go through just countless. I mean, there must be 25 things on how you can simplify meetings and 20 things on how to simplify emails. So there, and there are tons of tools out there. So looking at those two things, because there's a pretty good chance, but meetings and emails are sucking your time and they're not being done well. How can you simplify them? Look, they're not going away. We need email, we need meetings, but how can we do them more effectively so that we can move and get to the work that really matters? And one of the things you you talked about, which I, I highlighted, I, I found that very interesting, was you talked about the concept of workplace uh, rituals as well. So maybe you can share a little bit of, of, about what that means and why that that's important, because I, I found that very interesting. Yeah. So what we know is that for people to perform at their best, they have to feel certain feelings, right? We all know that when you're performing at your best, you're probably feeling things like excited, energized, enthusiastic, happy, joyful, alive, right? No one has ever said, when I'm performing at my best, I'm feeling glum, depressed, despondent. I mean, those are, that's a, now we might feel those things and have to get work done. So if we think about what are rituals, we all have them in our personal lives. I mean, for example, if it's your birthday, I mean, most of us have had the ritual of a birthday cake with candles and we sing happy birthday, you blow out the candles and there's this little magic moment. There's all sorts, and that's just an example of a birthday. We have other, like bigger rituals. We have things like weddings and funerals. Those are all rituals around of making certain moments pop, stand out in life. Also, you know, New Year's Eve, we've got all sorts of rituals, holiday rituals. Well, if you look at the workplace, it is shockingly devoid of these rituals. We just don't have that many. And you think about those rituals, people start to look forward to those or they remember things vividly because we have these rituals. Well, what if we as leaders created rituals for what we'll call the employment life cycle, right? So if you think about it, you've got recruiting, You've got um, the arranging of the interview. You have the interview. You have the hiring. You have the first day on the job. You have orientation week, whatever. You have your first training. You have your first project. Um, you may even have a rituals around termination. I mean, your performance man, performance reviews, right? All these things, there's opportunities to go, how can I make this the most memorable engaging, interesting thing. Like imagine if your first day on the job was so amazing. And I talk about this as the peak moments. Like that is such a window because as we all know, the first day on the job, we are all, our heads are spinning and we are forming impressions of like, did I make a good decision? Is this a good place? Are these people nice? Like if we could create rituals around the first day where employees walk away and go, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I won the flipping lottery to get to work here. How cool is this? I mean, how much momentum is that going to build moving forward as opposed to, and I write about this guy in the book, you know, a horrible story where you show up on your first day is like, okay, well, first you have to go down to security and get your badge. 
Okay. And you're down in security for two hours. All right. Now, oh yeah, the person that hired you, well, they're out this week on a business trip. So why don't you sit here? Someone will be by. And again, every minute goes by, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this was the biggest mistake <laughs> of my life. Um, so it's just thinking about these ideas of building these rituals in and understanding in much, you know, there's so much talk about the customer experience, yeah. you know, that every single touch point that we have with a customer shapes their experience. It isn't just buying the product or the service. It's the whole, how do they navigate our website? How easy are we to do business with? What does our invoice show up? Like all these things are part of the customer experience. Well, the employee experience is no different. There's all these touch points. And so rituals are a great way to create an employee experience where people are going, wow, I would never want to work anywhere else. Yeah. And I think it's it's an excellent point. The employee experience is, is so crucial. I mean, it's the difference between sometimes what makes them answer a recruiter's phone call or just ignore it. And when I read the, um, uh, the stories and when you were talking about the workplace ritual, it did remind me of when I was working... In, in a training group in my other uh, company. And, and we did this ritual. Anytime we had a new training manager that came on board, we decorated their office. We really made like a big day and tried to make them feel special. And I don't think I really realized the significance of that until I, I read through it in your book. Intuitively, I knew it was important, but you kind of really helped to bring it to the surface. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the things as people read through the book, it's stuff that you might have gotten intuitively, but you go, oh, that's that. You give it, giving it a name because then you can be intentional about replicating it. So you can lead effectively on demand and not just wait for it to happen just out of, oh, that's something I just sort of do every so often. It's like, yeah, that, why do I do that? And why is that important? And let's do it more often. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and I do want to go back to communication because- uh, there was a piece that that you wrote in there that I thought was was well done, and it was important to kind of highlight it. And that's talking about you know the the challenges in overcoming some of the the mistakes we make around communication. So perhaps you can share a little bit about about that. So communication is probably one of the biggest challenges in the workplace. I mean, every time it, you know people say, "What are your biggest challenges?" Communication is usually in the top three. You know, eighty percent of people put it as the top one. You know, it's it's really a big issue. And the reason that we have such problems with communication is, in some ways, we take it for granted. You know, we assume that hey, if I can speak and you can hear and you know, or you can type and I can read your email, like it's all happening. But it, it communication doesn't work like that way. And, and so the biggest challenges all stem from the fact that the natural default setting of human communication is flawed. It's we're going to actually end up with misunderstanding because to get alignment, to get actual 100% accurate, effective understanding, you need to align three things that are very rarely aligned, which is let's say you and I are communicating, Rob, there's what do I mean in this message? There's what do I say? when those two things might be off already. And then there's what do you hear? So there's what I mean, what I say, and what you hear. And for us to have accurate understanding, all three of those things have to be perfectly in sync. And there's a whole host of reasons why they may not be. And so as leaders, we have to realize, wow, the default setting is going to meet misunderstanding. So what are all the things that I can do to create that alignment? So for example, one of the big things that misses, you know, we're challenged with communication because in our own minds, 
it's crystal clear. I know what I mean to myself. Now, I may not express it that way, but other people don't have the same context. And I'm amazed at how often I sit in on business meetings and someone who is a subject matter expert just kind of launches and drills down into the details. And they'll usually show up with, you know, a six point font PowerPoint slide with like all these details and they're running through all this stuff. You know, it's like 75 slides and they're going like, whoa, whoa, time out. Like step back, like you need to orient other people because they haven't been living and breathing and eating and drinking this stuff the way you have. So share some context and then bring people on board. Yeah, you've got 75 points. What are the top three that are relevant for the people you're talking to here? So part of it is that and also realizing another big and kind of alluding to it already Another big challenge to communicating is the fact that most of us are drowning in information. We've got too much information, but what we're lacking is insight. And so as leaders, we want to make sure that people are walking away with the right insight at the right time to take the right action. Because the reason that creating shared understanding is so important is because understanding is the platform on which we make all future decisions and create all future actions and results. And if that foundation is solid, we're gonna make good decisions, we're gonna get great results. If that foundation is tippy and wobbly, we're gonna make some poor decisions, we're gonna end up with some poor results. So those are a few of the things that will get in your way. And just in terms of some practical things that you can start to do, one simple one, it's in the book, but it's really simple, I call it asking for a receipt. I mean, how many of us have been in a business meeting, meeting ends, we're like, okay, everyone's off. You know what you're doing. And we go off. And oftentimes what happens is we call it the meeting after the meeting. Hey, Rob, what, what do we say we're doing? What are we, who, who's doing what, what, what? So we don't capture that in the moment. We're doing this meeting after the meeting and oftentimes it's wrong. So instead of doing that, what if instead, radical concept, you plan on ending your meeting about five or 10 minutes earlier and you say, hey, let's just go around the table and Rob, what is it exactly you're doing? And so that everyone gets to hear it. And it's not that we're treating you like children. It's just that misunderstanding happens. And if I come to it with the spirit of just to confirm, just to make sure we're on the same page, just to make sure that we can go out there and just hit those targets and do whatever we need to do. Let's just make sure we are clear up front. And that's called asking for a receipt, a receipt of understanding. I am one of those leaders that uh, unfortunately learned the hard way after many years of uh, realizing I should have been asking for a receipt because uh, I would always end up having a meeting after a meeting and asking why certain things weren't done. And I have like a deer in a headlight look because I either didn't provide the right context or and didn't confirm at the end of my meetings that we were all on the same page. And it is amazing, just even, as you said, just taking five minutes, five, 10 minutes at the end of a meeting would save so much more time down the road. That's why I wanted to come back to that point and, and have you speak a little bit to it. Because you're right, it's a simple fix that, that you can do that could really save you a tremendous amount of time. Yeah, and I think a lot of leaders shy away from it because they think, oh, what, you know, these are adults. They can do their right. job. I don't want to treat them like children. It's like, this isn't about children. This is about, these are important decisions. It's, you know, it's the old carpenter's maxim, right? Measure twice, right. cut once. Yeah. So let's just measure twice. Let's just make sure we're confirming it twice and then go off and cut once and you're fine. Yeah, and sometimes you're just too close to it. I've had several employees that would tell me, when I would say to them, well, we discussed this, and they would look at me like, well, maybe you did in your mind, but this is the first we're hearing of it. 
So just a, a few more questions. When we look at, at, at connection, communication, collaboration, and so in your expert opinion, is one more important than another when you get to different levels of leadership, right? So whether you're a, a second line leader or an, at the executive le- level, do you feel like if I am at the executive level, should I be focusing more on connection versus communication or is it all the same regardless of the levels? The book is designed and my, my thinking behind it is, is that they're all really important. You can't succeed without all three. That being said, I'm a big, there's a reason that connection comes first. I see connection as the heart of everything else, because unless you get to connection, people aren't going to want to listen to you much and they're not going to want to collaborate with you. And I think that's important. I think that especially as you rise up at the more executive levels, I think that you modeling that connection piece becomes more important because as we all know, culture, organizational culture is a result of the behaviors that we, that we do. And people look to the senior people to model those behaviors. So I think that becoming a more expert connector becomes a bigger liability later on if you haven't done it. So I think that's a key piece moving forward Um, because ultimately people will only model the behaviors that their leaders are willing to model for them. Yeah. So true. Well said. And, and last question. So if, if I am a, a new leader, perhaps I might be hopefully leading a team one day, or I just took over a team. If there's one piece of advice you can give, you know, and you offer several throughout your book, if there's one thing that if, if I am a new leader that I should focus on, what would that be? Go do a listening tour. You know, you know, that's a kind of a cheesy thing to say, but go around to, hey, I'm new and, and go to your teams and ask them, you know, pick four or five stock questions such as, hey, um, if you were me, what would you do? Or what do you think is what's the biggest challenge in your role? How can I support you in your role? So these are all variations on the theme to get people talking. So it's twofold. Number one, you're going to get some great information about what your people think. Number two, the act of you going and asking the questions and then shutting up and listening sends a really clear message that I hear you, I value you, your time and your expertise is important. And that starts to put some, as Stephen Covey said so well, some put some deposits in the emotional bank account. So I'd say that is such a useful thing to do. Because, yeah, maybe you were thinking you were going to do those things anyway, but isn't it better to hear it from the people who are impacted by it? And then they can say, oh, they're doing the thing I told them to do, and they'll take all this pride of ownership. So it is such a useful thing. I coach leaders all the time when they're like, I'm just going in this new role. What should I do? Go and listen. Go and listen. Ask a bunch of questions and listen, listen, listen. Yeah, great advice. Well, it gets back to the connection piece. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Well, I do want to thank you for coming in and sitting down with me. Uh, It's been a great discussion. Your book was fantastic. And we will put all of your links in the show notes. We'll put your website, uh, the link to your book as well for anybody who would like to reach out to you. So once again, I appreciate you coming on the show and jamming with me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rob. It's really been my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening in today. If you're interested in learning more about the show or how we can assist you through my leadership consulting company, then please visit my website at leadershipjamsession.com.